Hello and welcome to The Dialogues, the interview series about people with type 1 diabetes, for people with type 1 diabetes and with people with type 1 diabetes, where we talk to you, your doctors, nurses, nutritionists, CGM experts, entrepreneurs and pretty much anyone with interesting perspectives and insights in the world of type 1 diabetes. Make sure you subscribe and make sure you give us feedback and let us know what you want to know. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGM stuck on you. Not Just a Patch gives 10% of all profits to support insulin access for all. Visit notjustapatch.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get 10% off your next order. Enjoy the episode, everyone. Kelvin, yeah, welcome to the Dialogues. How are you? Good, good. How are yourself? Yeah, good, good. Really great to have you. I'm really excited, actually. Uh, and I think that this is one of the episodes that I've been most looking forward to. Great. I'll get you to introduce yourself in a second. But the reason I'm um, particularly excited is because you're an endocrinologist. And um, I think that it's interesting that, you know, as a diabetic and being in the community of diabetics, we, we talk amongst, a lot amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think it's rare, well, it's rare, at least from where I've sat anyway, that we actually get a chance to hear from an endocrinologist and understand the perspective of an endocrinologist. So I'm really excited to have you on today. And in saying all of that, if you don't mind, just a, a quick intro, uh, tell us about, you know, sort of who you are and, and what your background is. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to chat and share my perspectives and experiences with you today. So a little background. My name is Dr. Calvin Wu, by the way. I am an endocrinologist based in San Francisco, California, and I'm currently the lead endocrinologist at Steady Health. So maybe that requires a little context as well. But uh, Steady Health is a completely virtual diabetes clinic that's basically available on your smartphone. We're currently in California and Washington State in the United States. But I guess importantly, we are first and foremost a full service endocrinology clinic. So we see patients via telemedicine visits, we write prescriptions, manage labs and paperwork. Uh, what, what makes us, what sets us apart, though, I'd say, is that we go above and beyond. We were leveraging uh, the power of continuous glucose monitors to provide us a constant uh, flow of data, so we can, you know, troubleshoot and deal with issues as they arise. And we're using software then, messaging, video, telemedicine, etc., to deliver more data-driven, connected, and personalized diabetes care experience overall. Awesome. So I think we're, we're really, really solving for a couple things. I mean, I think you know, lack of access to providers, you know, diabetes being a twenty-four-seven disease, and Kind of lack of time to review the data and really use that to personalize diabetes management. Yeah, look, I think I think Steady Health is a fascinating organization and um, really keen to sort of unpick a little bit about how Steady is addressing some of the issues that exist, I suppose, in the world of diabetes and, and endocrinology. Before we kind of jump in, I think to get a bit more detail around Steady and this new model of care that you're bringing to the market, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey as an endocrinologist, you know, tell us a little bit about how you started and, and why you got into endocrinology. I think if we want to talk about the path of how I got to where I am today, it probably starts in college. So I studied bioengineering at UC Berkeley. I'm really always really been fascinated with technology itself and particularly applications and health and healthcare, right? You know, I really enjoy that, that, that stint there, but I would say like, I was definitely drawn to kind of the human interaction, really enjoy kind of working with people, you know, pushing them on this path of, towards better health and so forth. So that kind of made, made my decision to go into medical school. Uh, went to USC, University of Southern California. You know, medical school is kind of a, it's actually, you know, it's, it's four years, which you know, in some ways sounds like a lot, but it's also a lot of material to cram into a couple yeah. of years. 
Uh, I will say that, you know, endocrinology in terms of its, you know, the, the topic itself always kind of, you know, picked my interest a little bit more than the rest. And I think it's, it has to do more with kind of the elegance of like the, the hormone pathways that our body has and so forth. It's, it's just really nice that you can actually make sense of things. Um, and so that, that really drew, drew me to that field in particular. When you say when you say make sense yeah. of things, give us a little bit yeah. more detail. I, I think I find this stuff fascinating, and I think our listeners will find it fascinating as well. Just to kind of sure. because I think we it's easy to think about an endocrinologist as someone helps you deal with your diabetes, but I think there's so sure. much, you know, to endo, so much more to endocrinology. And and you know, when you say endocrinology allows you to get a sense of things, give us a bit more detail on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be clear too, I think uh, obviously every endocrinologist has a different experience, but I'd say you know, when I was out in practice and so forth, I was probably seeing 40-50% diabetes actually. So that leaves a, a good chunk too that's seeing other things like thyroid conditions, adrenal glands, you know, osteoporosis, etc. Yeah. So there, there's a whole field outside that. But coming back to the question in terms of uh, endocrinology and so forth, um, yeah, I think that the what, in terms of what's really fascinating about it is that it's it's really about communication, right? Your body's Different organs are basically communicating with each other. They're coordinating things. And what's really cool about endocrinology is that if you understand those signals and what they're intended to do, you yeah. can diagnose the problem from there, right? So maybe I can give a simple example, which is to say, if you think of your thyroid as a, a hormone factory, right? It's just making uh, hormones, thyroid hormone, I should say. Well, to be clear, there, you're, there's a part of your brain that's controlling that. It's sending hormones, uh, and those, if those levels rise, it basically says, thyroid, make more hormone for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're diagnosing a problem with the thyroid and so forth, you then look at those hormone levels, the TSH in particular. Yeah, you're yeah. saying, oh, if the TSH is high, it means I'm, my brain is really trying to push my thyroid to work harder. So the, actually the problem then lies in your thyroid. Your thyroid factory is destroyed, essentially. It's not you know, producing enough, for instance. Yeah. But if those hormone levels are low, maybe something's upstream is the problem, actually. You're, something in your brain is not sending the right signals. So, you, so hopefully that gives you a taste of kind, kind of how interesting it all can be. It, it all makes sense at the end of the day. You can figure out where the problem is based on that. Do you want to even delve a bit deeper? Because I, I, I think this stuff's fascinating. Yeah. We want to delve a little bit deeper even into sort of hormones in general and kind of uh, give us a little bit of context about the importance of hormones. Because that, that's really, I suppose, what you're dealing with as an endocrinologist. That's kind of, you know, you're a hormone doctor. Is that? An, right, exactly. <laughs> is that, is exactly, that a, exactly. a way of looking at it? Yeah, no, and it's at its core, yes, we are we are hormone doctors. I think that's a fair statement in that case. And I think hormones truly are really chemicals, essentially, that, that help us co coordinate our activities. So the, the sense is that your body is always trying to maintain homeostasis, right? We don't want too much of anything. We want too too little of everything. So in that regard, you're you're always trying to stay in between in that that sweet spot, we'll say. So yeah. when it comes to hormones, then exactly, you're just trying to coordinate those things. So your, for instance, your blood sugar doesn't get too high. Your, your body temperature doesn't get too high, for instance. All those are all you know, driven essentially by hormones. And so there's probably a really long list of conditions that we could go into that mm -hmm. are relevant to hormones, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. I imagine that actually you overlap with other specialties quite a lot. Um, and that other specialties may even come to you for consults to help understand things when the hormones are at play. But if we take diabetes as an example, because I guess that's one of the more prominent um, hormonal conditions. And I suppose we don't always think about diabetes as a hormonal, because, you know, I think we kind of just, we, we live in this world of we've got diabetes and we manage it and it's all about blood sugars, but actually do you want to give us a bit of context around the relevance of hormones in, in, in the diabetes space? Yeah, no, and I think this is a very relevant question because I think when we talk about diabetes, it's always like, oh, high blood sugar, low blood yeah. sugar. But 
it's important to understand at its core, actually, insulin is a hormone that regulates energy, right? It's, it's how our bodies actually make use of energy properly. So to give you some example there, like as you eat something, right? You eat something, you're, you're, you absorb those nutrients, you know, those amino acids, those, you know, the glucose molecules making your bloodstream, they're circulating to get to your, your cells, right? So insulin then is a hormone then that basically says, you know, open up those doors, let this sugar into your cells. And then once it's in there, use those to make other new, new molecules, new cells, new, new, new things and otherwise, maybe store some of that extra sugar for later, for instance, right? So in other words, it's courting all of that. And so if you look at, for instance, when you're eating, when you're fasting, those hormones are also constantly changing. Because if you're eating, for instance, you're in a well-fed state, there's plenty of nutrients, that's where insulin's active actually. Right? It's actually trying to put those into use and store them away. Versus if you're hungry and you're starving, for instance, insulin levels are at the lowest, right? Because you're not trying to do that anymore. You're trying to actually you know, kind of um, derive energy sources from elsewhere. So. And so do you want to give us a little bit more detail around insulin itself? I think you did explain it pretty well in that it's like it's like a key that unlocks the cell and allows it to mm -hmm. function. Um, where do things start going wrong? And I suppose we could go down two paths here. And, and I'm sure. curious probably to unpick the type one and type two and, and sure. other That's types fine. as well. Because I know that there's a, a growing list of different types of, of yes. diabetes. And, and one of the things I think that we're all fascinated by, particularly type ones, is, is how did we get it? You know, and uh, certainly I know me, I, I reflect on, on, on my diabetes journey. I was 30 at the time uh, when, I got when I got diagnosed with diabetes and I look back in that time and I was working particularly hard and I wonder if it was stress related, but I'm always going to wonder because it could have been, it could have been a virus. It could have been stress. I mean, it's, do you want to help me and, and help our listeners kind of I don't know, begin to get a bit of a handle on, on how we might think about how we ended up with type one. Yeah, I'll try to answer that, which is to yeah, say the answer is complicated. And, and we don't know that all the answers actually. So yeah, to be, clear, to be clear, uh, I think it's, let me preface it by saying that first. Yeah. But uh, in terms of diabetes, again, because the manifestation we're familiar with is blood sugar. But again, it, it's at, the, at its core, actually, all of diabetes, and you, you're absolutely right, by the way, diabetes is a hodgepodge of the different diseases that manifest in you know, similar ways, we'll say. With, with it being a high blood sugar otherwise. But you know, at its core, in other words, it, it's really about insulin actually. So when, when you talk about type one and type two, and obviously I'm generalizing a little here um, and simplifying of sorts, but basically it comes down to, is there insulin around, right? So is there a true insulin deficiency, right? And this, this gets to type one, uh, type one diabetes. And type two then is gonna be more insulin resistance, which means you make insulin, but it's nowhere near enough to meet the demand, right? Supply doesn't meet, meet demand essentially. Mm -hmm. And you can actually have kind of in-betweens, which is to say you can have people have type one who have elements of insulin resistance, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, yes, they're reliant on insulin, but they may require much higher doses than, than someone who doesn't have the insulin resistance as well. Yeah. But at its core, again, either insulin isn't there or it's not working properly. And so that's interesting actually about type ones having insulin resistance as well. Does that mm -hmm. mean that you have type ones who have versions of type two or? Not, not so much so. I think, I think in those, I, I want to be clear that type one, the reason they're having those issues is again, their pancreas isn't producing the insulin per se, but in other words, they can have elements of insulin resistance um, that, you know, for instance, um, being overweight, for instance, is, is one of the classic situations where that counteracts how well insulin works. And yeah. therefore they can, they can require just as much insulin as someone who has type two who typically needs yeah. much higher doses, we'll say. And so how do we start to unpick the origins of our getting type one diabetes. I, and, and, and I know that there's a lot of yeah. that we don't know. 
But exactly. like, is there any comfort we can take in kind of thinking about some of the potential reasons that we have type 1 diabetes? Well, we have mapped out that it's likely an autoimmune process, right? So we know your immune system has somewhere, somehow along the lines gone haywire. It's recognizing your own pancreas essentially as the enemy and gradually destroying it. And so you know, if those factory cells, in other words, are destroyed, you're not making insulin. You know, in terms of causes, you know, there's, you know, stress, for instance, you know, like things like, you know, infections, for instance, but yeah. anything that really turns on the immune system is really thought of as a, as a possible culprit, unfortunately, right? Yeah. So we, that, this is where, unfortunately, I can't give you a straight answer, which is say, how did it happen in you? Uh, which is to say, we're still looking into that. There's, there's clinical trials, for instance, that are trying to understand and pick apart those, that, that knowledge. But unfortunately, we don't know exactly. So there's a lot of conjecture here, but there, we do know that there are certain things that seem to, precipitate it, right? And so even, even viral infections, for instance, you know, in, you know, stressful situations, et cetera. But yeah. at the end of the day, how it manifests is an autoimmune attack, in other words. So let's say we were to say stress is a cause. How does stress per se initiate the autoimmune response? And actually just on that, yeah. is there any yeah. type uh, one that's not autoimmune? So technically, it wouldn't be called type one if it's, it was something else. So there's actually a second. There's another class called secondary diabetes, which means it's due to a different disease. Let's say, for instance, you have uh, cystic fibrosis, right? Where where um, you know there's all these you know secretions that clog up the, the pancreas and it ends up kind of digesting itself. That's a different situation because the pancreas itself is damaged, right? So it's not an autoimmune attack in that situation. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, let's say you have pancreatic cancer and you end up taking the whole thing out from surgery. You don't have those cells anymore, but it's not that you have type one. However, functionally speaking, you have the same problem, right? which is to say that you still need to treat with insulin because your body doesn't have that capacity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And so stress, how, how do we implicate stress? Like what, is the, what does stress do that creates an autoimmune response? I, I'm not an expert on that, I'll be clear. Um, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of complicated pathways that people are still exploring. Um, and so I think it's, it's not clear. I, I think Sorry it's just a simple answer. I, I, I've read into some of these things, but it's, it's hard to really explain it. I don't think we have a good firm understanding, I think is the key. So. Yeah, and that, that's interesting. So, um, and I suppose it's probably a similar answer to viral related or any other thing that triggers you know, autoimmune responses. In terms of the research and in terms of the research that you would have seen as a student mm -hmm. and where we're at with the research now, where do you think we are at in terms of getting closer to preventing type one? I, I heard something about potential vaccines or potential treatment to avoid type one? Is, any, any... There's research in that area. I, I would, the best way I'd characterize it right now is it's pretty exploratory, which is to say that, you know, that we're basically trying to temper that immune response and, you know, make it so that our immune system doesn't attack our body and so forth. Um, you know, there's, there may be some small encouraging you know, results here and there, but it's not, it's nowhere near, near for ready for prime time, we'll say. What are you seeing in the, the worlds of diabetes research that's encouraging at the moment um i think if you're trying to address it from a like a biological standpoint and so forth, i think one of the interesting avenues is like islet cell transplants right for instance like the idea here is that you can you know extract these islet cells you actually infuse it into liver and those cells if they take and so forth can essentially produce insulin appropriately you know so you, you have some people for instance with type 1 I've, I've seen a small number who have even you know been off insulin for some time the question is, of course, is, you know, long-term, what, what is the outcome, right? You know, in terms of the procedure itself, in terms of, you know, do they, do, does that, uh, you know, insulin independence, we'll say, kind of persist? That's yeah. the challenge, I think. And it's, still, again, also very experimental at this stage. So you're saying that currently there are 
type one diabetics out there who have received islet cells injected mm -hmm. islet cells and mm -hmm. they are functioning and producing insulin in those patients and mm -hmm. those patients and there's some patients who are not on insulin because of those injections or transplant correct correct to some extent exactly so um and but there again you know, i've had people for instance where uh you know like for instance, one or two years later, they're back on insulin. For instance, so the the question here is to prolong that longevity of those cells. Also, and you know, getting these cells is also hard. For instance, a lot of times it's from a cadaver. You know, someone who's passed away. You know, taking those cells immediately, and th those whole pro whole protocols are very complicated and still in development. So, but you know, that's promising, right? If someday we could somehow generate stem cells that we can you know put into the body and you know they take and you know start producing insulin, that'd be amazing, right? That would be kind of like the holy grail, we'll say. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating topic and a potentially exciting topic as well, because it looks like a real practical way to, to solve a short term problem anyway. Who are the patients getting those transplants at the moment? It's, it's very selective. Um, and again, these are clinical trials, to be clear. So it's not that uh, any center is saying that, oh, for, you know, open up, you know, everyone who has type 1 diabetes, please come to us. And so you know, I think a lot of it's, it's with, in medicine. There's a lot about risk versus benefit, right? Which is to say, you know, going through this procedure, there are risks involved. Is this someone who's likely to benefit? Like, for instance, someone who's, you know, having a lot of lows, you know, very sensitive to tiny amounts of insulin, for instance, yeah. they might benefit tremendously from this, for instance. And so, you know, and potentially someone younger, right? They have more, more years to live, we'll say. Um, they, they be, it may be more helpful for them to kind of prevent these outcomes. Um, again, I'm not on these you know, uh, selection committees to decide which patients are, but for instance, those could be good reasons to, to um, select someone to, to undergo this, this, this route. It is really exciting. Uh, what other areas of research are you seeing that uh, you think is, is worth mentioning today and, you know, for our listeners that, you know, just to, to be aware of? Yeah, I think the other thing, so I, I mentioned kind of approaching this from a biological angle. The other angle is actually approaching this from a, we'll say, bionic angle, right? Yeah. So basically trying to use, you know, technology, in other words, to kind of um, mimic the pancreas and hope, hopefully also create the artificial pancreas, right? Yeah. So that someone could literally, you know, plug in, plug into a machine essentially, and you know, have all that happen and so forth. I mean, there's been we've made a lot of progress. I'd say even the last, we'll say, five, ten years or so forth. And there's a lot of promising things coming down the pipeline. Really, I think if you if you think about that realm, by the way, there's I think there's so this concept of a like a, a true closed loop system. Mm. So which is to say that you have a CGM. So you have at least some source of data, in other words, right? Yeah. So it's a continuous data from of, of your glucose levels. Then you have uh, an algorithm, some sort of thing to basically process those numbers, understand where, where go, things are going. And then you have a pump basically delivering insulin and maybe other hormones too, actually. Yeah. Right. And then if these are all in constant crosstalk and so forth and coordinating everything appropriately, then then maybe someday we would have something that could you know be very responsive, manage your blood sugars when they go high, when they go low, and they would adjust for insulin levels accordingly, right? So in that realm, for instance, um, just so you know, there's, you know, right now, at least in the United States, there's four major CGM brands. There's close to 40 CGMs in development right now. So I think in, in, in the coming years, hopefully many of those will come out to, you know, to be real products. And so there, you know, th that, that's very exciting, you know. And then from the pump standpoint too, there's, there's multiple pumps as well. That are um, you know, are in development now. You know, I mentioned kind of different hormones. Like well, there's one, for instance, that actually will include insulin and glucagon, right? So up until now, for instance, traditional pumps actually only do insulin, so you can only lower blood sugars. Yeah. But if you give too much, you're, it's 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 given. You can't really do anything about that. Yeah. Imagine then being able to apply the brakes and give glucagon in reverse to raise your blood sugars, right? That's 
very cool, right? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, actually, just in practical terms mm -hmm. that, that you would have a device that actually is able to, to go both ways. Exactly, because um, right now we only have a brake pedal, essentially, and we can only go down, right? And, and, and so to be able to have control in both directions would be incredibly exciting. How, how do pumps manage that at the moment? Because you don't, and maybe it's the way that pumps are sold, but you don't hear when, you, when, when pumps are mentioned, you don't, I don't hear that hypos are a problem. What's the kind of general messaging from the pump companies as to why hypos aren't, aren't an issue? I, I, I think it speaks, yeah, I think it speaks more to the, the CGM and kind of predictive algorithms there, which is to say that it's basically now that, you know, now that we can kind of understand the trajectory of your more recent blood sugar readings, yeah. is like, where do I expect things to go, right? Because, you know, if you're rising and so forth, the assumption is you'll continue rising. But as it gets more data, it's going to update its algorithm to say that, yeah, my prediction actually is changing over time, right? And so that then allows your, your pump then to kind of preempt it, right? Say like, oh, I think my blood sugar is going to drop to 70, for instance. Yeah. I'm actually going to start taking away my basal, you know, stop, stop right. releasing yeah. that constant release and so forth. So that by the time you actually get there, I've already changed course, right? I've given you less insulin, your blood sugar is on its rise now, essentially. Is there evidence around number of hypos for people with pumps versus people without pumps? I mean, is it, what do you expect there? What's the data say? So, I mean, the truth is we have currently two hybrid closed-loop systems on the market and again, many more that are in development. And that's actually one thing they're trying to prove, which is to say, you know, especially now that we have CGM and so forth, you know, time and range, right? Trying to keep your blood sugars between, well, we use different metrics here. We use milligrams per deciliter, 70 yeah. to 180, for instance. But the idea is if you keep people in that safe zone and so forth, how much can we maximize that, but also avoid the low blood sugars, right? Yeah. And so a lot of these trials are also trying to look into that to say that, you know, it's, there's a reduction there that we're managing to, because of these advanced algorithms and trying to take away the basal or when, when, it's not, when it's necessary, it can hopefully prevent those uh, situations. So if you look at some of these trials, for instance, you'll see some um, encouraging data in that direction. So just to change tack a little bit, I'm quite curious and keen to start to explore you know, models of care and, and the system in general that, that we are all in, in this healthcare system and, and endocrinology in general, and the sort of dynamics that influence patient care and experience. To kick off that, do you want to just start to kick off a little bit? And, and I don't know whether growing up as a, a junior doctor, you know, there, were, there was lots of kind of thought given to system issues, you know, in terms of the, the system that we're all in as patients and doctors. But do you want to maybe speak a little bit to what you've seen or how you've seen the system, the healthcare delivery system evolve over the last however many years? How many years has it been since you, uh, how long ago were you a junior doctor? <laughs> it's, a, it's a long path for us. Let's see here. So four, so four years of residency. I did four years because I did actually internal medicine and pediatrics. So that's another four years plus two more years of fellowship. So Okay. We'll say 10 years in training, we'll say. And then came out, I've been about, I'll say, four or five years out in practice now. So. And yeah, so maybe give us a little bit of insight into, you know, your perspective as a doctor to the system, you know, and what, yeah. you know, has it changed over the last X number of years and, and what sort of changes have you seen if so? In short, not much. And so maybe to preface that a little bit is to say that, you know, like I think as we're training and so forth, I think a lot of us come into medicine with kind of an ideal an expected, you know, we, we know what we're getting into sorta, but we don't really know the day, day in and day out kind of nuts and bolts at all of it. Um, I think when we come out and so forth, we don't get, we don't really get trained on how, like, you know, how does building work? How does the, the healthcare system work and so forth? So in some ways, I think we're all in for a rude awakening when we you know, start practicing and seeing patients because 
the reality is, unfortunately, a lot of medicine is actually spent on paperwork. So a lot of times it's spent on, you know, like not having enough time, you know, cause you're, you're scrunched in to see a lots of patients, especially if you're in a, like a, a large managed care type of uh, like organization, for instance, where unfortunately it almost, it can often feel like you're just a cog in a wheel. Like you're just, yeah. you know, seeing tons of patients, et cetera. And then on top of that, you have to also worry about kind of reimbursement. It sounds sad, but the truth yeah. is at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a business as well. And you have yeah. to kind of keep things going of sorts, right? So, you know, you have to kind of look at the, how much are you getting paid for this and so forth. Yeah. I think a lot of people have this misconception that doctors are paid well and so forth. And there's no doubt that there's some that are. Yeah. Um, but I will say that the, the system actually is, is much more complicated than people realize. And for that matter, the, the cut we'll say that we get is actually uh, potentially much smaller than people understand as well. Absolutely. I don't know what it was I was listening to. It was in the last day or two and it was yeah. actually talking about the business of healthcare and we could probably do an entire podcast actually, I think. And it's certainly an area of interest of mine being in Australia, having lived in the UK and in the US and having been exposed yeah. to systems and having awareness and you know, having worked previously around the space of healthcare delivery and being aware of efficiencies and inefficiencies in systems and on one hand, you've got the U.S. system, which is expensive, but the, the, the outcomes aren't any better. And in fact, some of the outcomes are outside of, say, the top 10. So you've got the most expensive system, which actually isn't delivering the best outcomes, which must be really frustrating. And, and then you have how frustrating for, as a doctor and frustrating as a patient as well, particularly Very. patient. Um, exactly. And then you've got all the businesses around it, the insurance and, and, and just the, the private hospitals that have these executives that are getting paid pretty well yeah exactly. and, and you know it's we're not going to solve that problem today but i think it's good for everyone to be aware because i think sometimes i certainly hear patients and i've probably been one of those patients that complain about sitting across from an endocrinologist who didn't give me what i wanted in, in that interaction absolutely, absolutely. But i've kind of i've kind of covered a lot there about the u.s system but do you want to i don't know do you do you have What's your, what's your kind of, what are your thoughts on, on that system, on the inefficiencies and, and, and the outcomes that, that, that are, you know, they're in the U S at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think, I think, um, a lot of, a lot of topics there that I think yeah. fully agree with of source. And to say that, you know, I think at its core healthcare should just be provider to patient, right? If, if you think about it, those that are two stakeholders in this conversation that matter the most, right? The problem there is that there's a lot of people in between that kind of, you know, put themselves into, into place of sorts and, and, and are involved in that interaction of sorts. Yeah. And so that's what's probably most frustrating is that, you know, like, for instance, I'm very familiar with the patient side as well. I, I've seen my family members kind of go through it too. So you'll get these you know, surprise bills, you know, like, and, you know, it just feels sometimes like you're being nickeled and dime and so forth. I, yeah. I completely understand it too. And I think maybe to, since that is probably a common experience, maybe I'll shed more light on the provider side. Of sorts. Yeah. It's the fact that, for instance, I think healthcare is one of the very few industries, for instance, where you get a product and you don't get paid for months on end, by the way. So for instance, when I bill an insurance company for a visit, mm. I actually don't get paid for two, three months sometimes, actually. It yeah. can be that that long, actually. You know, that's true with Medicare. That's true with, you know, a lot of health insurance. You know, maybe a month, we'll say. But at the, at the very least, you don't get, it's not like a, you know, quick in transaction. Yeah. So, and then on top of that, then they'll come back and say like, oh, you didn't document this. We're going to deduct some money from this because it didn't qualify for this visit, for instance. Uh, and then, then, you know, sometimes like, you know, let's say the son gave you the wrong credit card for number, like a, a honest mistake, for instance, but when you build them and so forth, it doesn't go through and so forth. And then you can't find them for instance, yeah. then, then you don't get paid either. Right. So there's, there's, it's, it's frustrating for both ends, but the system's definitely broken in many ways. And again, I think it speaks to, again, that there's just so much stuff crammed in the middle 
that doesn't need to be there, right? Like, in, in, you know, like in terms of tra price transparency, for instance, is a huge issue. Like the fact that I can't, I don't know when I'm prescribing medication, how much my patient will pay for it. And, and to even compare between options, it's, it's, it's very hard to do so, you know? Yeah. I mean, there are fortunately some initiatives towards that direction, but um, you know, like for instance, like GoodRx, for instance, you can actually look things up and so forth uh, and yeah. compare costs of sorts. But even then there's, you know, pharmacy benefit managers, et cetera, making deals on the back end there to even allow for that. So the problem is again, that there's a lot that's being you know, intervening, but we don't see it at the end of the day. All we see is this interaction being poor and then we blame each other essentially. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, it's, I, think, I think it is, as I said, a fascinating topic and we could spend quite a while on it. Um, this one's putting you on the spot a little bit, maybe. Do you, and it's just out of my pure curiosity, actually, because I did talk about it a little bit. And that is how did, how did and I, we, we are talking about the US, right? And, and you know, yeah. I probably need to explore other systems with some other, other guests, but how sure. did the US healthcare system end up where do you have any insight into or any kind of knowledge as to how it ended up um, just out of curiosity, how it, how it ended up uh, where it is? Um, I have some sense. I mean, the truth is, again, unfortunately, we don't have much of a training in this and we really should because to understand how we got here is part of the issue, right? You have to understand how we got here before we can try to fix this mess. I mean, for one thing, for instance, you know, insurance is often tied to jobs, right? You know, health insurance and so forth. And so, for instance, if you lose your job, you lose your health care. And it's like, well, okay, like I, I lose my job on purpose a lot of times, yeah, especially in COVID right now, right? Where, where people are losing jobs just because, you know, things aren't working out for anyone really involved. Yeah. And so I think that's certainly a big issue here, which yeah. is to say that, you know, things are tied to the wrong, there's no incentive there really, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to lose my health insurance, right? But yeah. it's, it's kind of to that and so forth. And then on top of that, I think in the back and so forth, I'm not sure how we got to, you know, all the hidden prices and otherwise too, but there's certainly just way too much bureaucracy kind of that, that's kind of been, uh, you know, insurance companies, for instance, like I think when you think about health, in, health insurance, let's at its, at its core again, yeah. should be something you only use when in an emergency right yeah. but health insurance is something ironically that's applied whenever you see a doctor etc yeah. and there's this whole business of you know out of pocket for instance it, it's super complicated right it's like super complicated yeah it doesn't need to be and, and but then with, this, with so many different players involved without any true transparency in what's going on i think that speaks to the issue here that, that we're having in the united states well, yeah, we know what's going on. I mean, there's ca there's cash incentive to deliver healthcare, and if there's no exactly. cash, they won't deliver it. And so, it, that's you know, that's the beginning of a, a massive, a massive problem for people who who are suffering. Maybe know? a well, not well known point, by the way, is that we're not even as doctors, we're not allowed to know how much else someone else has paid on that contract. Actually, it's illegal, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So, so for instance, we can't even say, oh yeah, how much are you charging for a patient and so forth. And if I were to ask and you find out and so forth, that, that, would, that would be against the law. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, it really should be that, you know, a procedure costs this much. You know, yeah. maybe you charge a little bit because you provide a better service or whatever, but it should be out there. But you, you don't know that. You can go to one hospital and be charged twice as much as another. So. And so we, we could spend another podcast talking yeah. about capitalism and so on and so exactly. on, right? But is there any reason to be optimistic about U.S. healthcare system? Is, there, is it possible that we may see in the next 50 years a system that's fairer? I hope so. I truly do hope so. I mean, the truth is in healthcare, things move very slowly. Right. Um, and I think it's because there's so many stakeholders involved of sorts. But you know, for better, or for worse, I think the pandemics really you know, shed, you know, made, made you know, laid bare really some of the, the flaws in the system, especially when people are losing coverage and have no place to turn. Yeah. Right. I think so in that regard, you know, necessity really will drive this conversation, I think, which is to say that when we have tons of people who 
can't manage on their own when we're seeing bad outcomes. Yeah. I, I truly hope that the lawmakers, that, that the, everyone involved can come together and find a solution. So I'm hopeful for that, but I, I haven't been very impressed with the progress so far. So. Fingers crossed for some better leadership, I suppose, in many senses, but in, in, the, in the healthcare delivery sense in particular. Correct. So look, this does segue, I think, fairly nicely because I think Steady Health is probably battling in a number of fronts, right? So the way I see it, Steady Health is trying to deliver better healthcare for diabetics. And you're doing it in this system. And I suppose that probably does create some obstacles. Do you want to talk a little bit about the improvements that Steady Health is looking to bring to diabetics through this new model of care? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, just just to be clear too, I think my motivations for joining Steady were actually twofold. I think the patient experience needs to improve, but I actually think the provider experience needs to improve too. And so that was really that one of the, my, my main motivations to join study and be part of this, this whole movement of sorts. So I think, you know, what I love about study, I think I really love the deeper connections I'm building with my members because it had a say in kind of how we design our care model. I can say that, you know, our first business is an hour. I can say that we can you know, continue this conversation over messaging and I can, I can spend time on mental health because I had the time to do so, you know, yeah. and, you know, like the, the fact that we can spend a whole hour talking about data, that's, a, that's unheard of in a traditional healthcare experience. And that's yeah. very fulfilling for both of us because, you know, at the end of the day, I think as doctors, we're part-time advisor, we're part-time kind of translator, actually, because it's like, we have all this, this medical training and so forth. We want to translate and distill it down to its core elements to present to, you know, a patient. Yeah. And we're in, in more and more, I think in the past, you know, medicine took a very paternalistic approach to this and said, oh, you see a doctor, here's a medication, take it, it'd be good, et cetera. Whereas now I, I'm very happy to see that there's a movement towards shared decision-making, for instance. And this is very much in that line, right? Which is to say that um, we want to help you understand what's going on because that's, that's, that's how we move forward together. Because at the end of the day, diabetes is a disease that the, the patient manages 24 seven essentially, right? We're there for a tiny sliver of that, that time. But um, as much as we want to, as much as we can, I should say, is that, you know, we want those interactions to be meaningful. So, you know, being to spend, you know, like being able to spend this time, for instance, with the data has let me figure out that a lot of times it's not just the ratio, it's, it's things like the meal composition, it's how they're, you know, timing their boluses, for instance. Um, yeah. I've actually been able to carb count with people, for instance, too. And then yeah. we, we can identify when things are a little off, et cetera, and, and kind of you know, change course. But there, there's no way I could have done that in the kind of traditional uh, approach in that sense. And certainly the time would not be you know, allotted to me. So what is it about the model that you've created that allows that time? And again, this, this is where I come back to kind of reimburse being, half, it has to be part of the conversation, right? Yeah. And so the fact is we charge a membership fee, but that then allows us then to spend more time to, to kind of focus on things that don't get billed at a, a face-to-face visit, right? Because yeah. um, unfortunately, you know, with traditional healthcare, you don't get paid until you see someone. There's that face-to-face and then you, you bill it and then that's, that's what you actually get paid for. Any yeah. work you do on the side, by the way, and a lot of directors end up doing it because yeah. we, we care, we, we want to and so forth, yeah. but we get paid nothing for it actually. So providing a solution there is to say that let's pay a, a nominal fee that lets us kind of you know, focus our time so that we don't have to worry about you know, making, enough, making ends meet, we'll say, but at the same time, lets me focus my time on the areas that I think are important. So I think that's one innovation, we'll say, that, that our approach allows for. Is the, is, the, is the system allowing reimbursement for non-face-to-face, non-physical face-to-face? More and more. There, I mean, there's a whole movement towards kind of remote patient monitoring of sorts, which is to yeah. say that as we get this data, you don't have to be face-to-face, um, but you're looking at the data and making decisions off of that so they can bill a certain amount. The, the, the comparative you know, amount that you get from that is still relatively small. 
So it's still a system that very much encourages a face-to-face -face visit. But fortunately, we are making inroads in that regard. And I think you know, COVID, if anything, has kind of forced changes yeah. in that uh, that realm as well. But uh, I think the care model design too is, is again, being able to take ourselves away from that face-to-face uh, -face visit uh, being the, the way we kind of move forward is then then we can you know we can continue conversation over messaging right it can be a continued process i can i look at data when things arise so if you have an issue next tuesday i i simply we just chat about it we look at your data i have all that ported into our systems but for instance you don't have to wait three months when you yeah. until you see your endocrinologist anymore right so overall it makes for a much more more fulfilling experience and what's and that translates in, in some cases to just patients being able to when they're super motivated to you yeah. know making tremendous progress right wouldn't it be great if somehow reimbursement or payment was attached to patient experience or patient outcomes? Wouldn't that be a, a great world to be in? And, and there is de definitely interest in this, kind of like value-based care, as we say, yeah. um, to say that, you know, like look at the outcomes and so forth. And I want to recognize too, unfortunately, that I think that's a step in the right direction, to be clear. But I think there's certainly limitations there as well. Because let's, let's, let's for, for an example, let's say for diabetes, uh, for better or for worse, unfortunately, A1C is the metric, right? So if, if the A1C is lower, the low sevens, for instance, that's considered control. But you and I know if you can have tons of lows and so forth, that average can be lower. And to put it bluntly, I can give someone a thousand units of insulin, their A1C will look very low, but they're not, <laughs> we're not, I'm not treating their disease, am I really? So, so that's the problem with some of these. You have, you have to figure out the right metric and it's in medicine, it's often complicated. It's not a simple number you can measure, for instance. Absolutely. And I think that um, one of the, challenges is that the outcomes are going to be seen in 10 20 30 40 50 years that's it and i think the and again back to the system a little bit but like the system is in the us is a little bit short-sighted and that yes. that short-sightedness actually is just going to compound and actually mm -hmm. it's going to mean that whatever chronic disease we're talking about because of the short-sightedness people aren't getting the care they need in the short term they'll end up in ICU sooner and the system's going to be more burdened by that. And um, I, I don't want to go back to the system, but that's just an example, I think, of like of what it means to be kind of short-sighted in, in this sense. Of course, of course. I mean, there's there's one statistic out there apparently that people change um, jobs and insurance, in other words, every two, three years, actually. So yeah. you can, that speaks to why they're so short-sighted. They don't really care what happens after two, three years. So. Well, you know, shareholders have to be appeased, you know, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. at all, really, doesn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. So yeah, just back to steady a little bit. Uh, what, what are, so how long has it been? How many, uh, I won't ask how many patients, it's maybe a bit sensitive, but how, how long has it been that you've been working with steady? I started back in about January of 2019. So it's been almost almost a year, almost two years now, essentially. So we're just a month and a half. Shy, so enough so. time to kind of have a bit of experience and to have a bit of a, an ability to compare, you know, some anecdotal patient experiences that you might have seen through or what, what you what you had seen anecdotally and what you're seeing now anecdotally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one thing, again, it's it, I have the freedom then to to focus my intentions where I think it's most important. So, for instance, we actually have a lot of members who are doing really well. You know, they come to us and they're they're looking for the high tech approach to diabetes yeah. and that attracts them. But yeah. let's be honest, their blood sugar is doing very well. We're trying to you know we certainly want to help them in, in what ways we can, but they're they're doing very well on their own, let's say. But there's others, for instance, that have A1Cs that are 12%, 14%. They have no education. On, their, their providers have never taught them about what diabetes even is, for instance. Those are people that we can do a tremendous amount of work for. And you know, I've, we've seen outcomes you know, that are very good 
I mean, it's, it's, it speaks to the fact that these people are highly motivated, just never had the resources. And for us too, to be able to, you know, shift our resources to those people to really help them and so forth. It's a very fulfilling experience, right? To be able to just turn things around literally within a couple of months. So. And um, you're doing it, is it all remote at the moment? We actually made a decision back in January, predating COVID, to actually go completely virtual. So yeah, it's all remote at this stage. Um, before that, we did have a physical clinic, but um, it was trying to figure out what our members were using, and it was mostly telemedicine. Yeah. And to say that, you know, I think it's, you know, our strengths are certainly that we're so data-driven and so forth. So, so in that regard, uh, you know, it was a natural switch to go telemedicine in that case. And then if you need more face-to-face -face care, you just mm -hmm. refer on to the appropriate destination. Right. And so that, that's definitely one thing that I was very, personally, I was very kind of hesitant about, you know, I've, I've always been tied to face-to-face -to -face visits, for instance, yeah. you know, and losing the, the chance to see someone examine their feet, for instance, examine their you know, infusion sites, you know, and all these other things that you can pick up in person, um, you lose that. And so the trade-off though, is that, you know, then we can reach people all over California, all over Washington, for instance, too. So there's some conscious decisions we made there. And we decided that primary care then can, can hopefully take the load off there. Right. Um, is to say that, you know, for exams and more importantly, too, you know, if they live 200 miles from me and so forth, you know, if, if I need to refer them to a you know, nephrologist, for instance, a kidney doctor, their local doctor is their best resource, actually. I would have no clue who to refer them to. Yeah. So in other words, they're, they're the best resource in the community. Let us be the, the resource that we are, which is diabetes. Yeah, that makes sense. Just to jump on, sort of, I'll start to begin to wrap up, but it would be remiss not to, to, to spend a little bit of time on CGMs in terms of where we've come from, where we're at, and where you think we're going. What's, do you want to give us the kind of your the endocrinologist's perspective on CGMs? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm personally a huge proponent, obviously. I think um, you know, when you're looking at a couple of finger sticks, and I'll tell you when I when it, at those older visits, we'll say it's just like just a bunch of, it's a scatter plot of data, right? Like you have, you know, a couple of finger stick readings per day, you put into three months and so forth, and there's no pattern essentially. Yeah. Whereas with, with CGM and so forth, you can actually start to unlock kind of insights on a more personal basis, right? You can actually, you know, dive into the day-to-day -day and understand that. So, you know, I think quantity of data is definitely a big advantage. The fact that you can see trends and reach out real-time real -time feedback, right? For the user themselves, that they can see what's going on, incredibly valuable. And, you know, of course, predictive alarms too um, is, is very helpful too. So in the field of endocrinology, we're very strongly in favor of this in general. So yeah. we're making a push for that. The problem, of course, is you know insurance coverage, costs, et cetera, do need to improve over time. Is there a, what actually any any sense of what the percentage of type ones on CGMs might be anywhere? Let's say the US. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing a chart, and I know it was dated a couple of years back and so forth. But I do remember there's a jump up in recent years, and I, I want to say it was something around thirty eight percent or so. Don't quote me on that, but uh, it's. It's, it's rising, maybe not as high as some other uh, other countries, for instance, but um, but yeah, probably getting in that range for type one. Right, that's really exciting. And the differences in the, what would you say there's, what there's for Libre, Medtronic, Dexcom, Eversense? Mm -hmm. like exactly. Those are the four that are currently in, in, in circulation uh, in, in the US, yeah. Do a quick, quick good and bad on each of them? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, so I think the, the key things, we can start with kind of like the Libre, for instance. I, yeah. I think I love that it's the most cost effective. Right? I mean, this is something that actually, you know, for people who are, you know, especially new to CGM and so forth, it doesn't doesn't cost a lot, we'll say, yeah, yeah. To, to try it out and so forth. I think it's it's convenient. It's not, you know, it's not this big applicator, et cetera. So it's very easy to use. Um, and, you know, 
good thing for Buffalo say. And especially yeah. with accuracy improving and so forth, that's definitely a big plus. I think Descom, I think the big advantage there is, of course, it's continuous feed, feeding the data, right? So the fact that they can see it automatically every five minutes. With the Libre, you have to scan, and people forget to scan, for instance, overnight. And so yeah. you're going to miss data. And sometimes overnights are critical to understand, you know, basal dosing, yeah, et cetera, right? Exactly. So Descom, I think, has a great thing there. And anecdotally, at least, a lot of patients love the accuracy there, too, um, and yeah, so yeah. forth. Um, in terms of Medtronic, I think that one is currently kind of in, in between in terms of uh, it's, unfortunately, it still requires finger sticks. So I think that's one one of the, its, its drawbacks in that regard. But, uh, you know, it, it, it does have a, offer a lot that uh, Dexcom does as well, which is the continuous five-minute data and so forth, and some trend analysis too. And, you know, in that sense, a lot of times the Medtronic pumps and otherwise, they're part of a whole ecosystem. So they kind of yeah. encourage you to stay in there. So if you love a Medtronic pump, you're likely going to be on a CGM, uh, Medtronic CGM. Ever since is interesting, obviously, because it's implantable. You know, yeah. right now in the U.S., it's only for three months. I know in Europe, it's you know they're looking at six months, maybe trying out for a year at some point. So the idea that you you don't have to you know constantly do that. To be fair, you still have to finger pricks for now, so yeah. it doesn't eliminate that concern. But um, that's also an interesting approach. But of course, it does require repeat procedures still, and that and getting people to insert it is actually a harder problem at the moment. I don't know that much about Eversense. Do you have patients at Steady who are on Eversense? Very few, very few. And I, I think, you know, ironically, it's, it's you know, I, I'm not sure. Yes, in some ways, endocrinologists are not necessarily procedure heavy. We do dire biopsy, I should say, but we're not really doing like a, it's, yeah. I, hate, I hate to call it that, but it's like a mini surgery, right, to put it in and, and, and take it out, et cetera. So um, I think that's maybe a hesitation for a lot of uh, my colleagues. Okay, so last question, and it comes from hearing in the community, you know, and I, I did allude to it earlier about, you know, patients wanting to complain about their doctors and, and mm -hmm. blame their doctors for whatever reason. If we're going to flip that around, what are some things that as patients we can do better or how can we adjust our perspective better to be a little bit more understanding of the job that an endocrinologist or anyone, I suppose, a credentialed diabetes educator or a nurse practitioner but, you know, particularly, I think the endocrinologists maybe get the, the, the toughest job sometimes when it comes to right. lack. What, what do you, what, what's some general feedback or advice or just things that we can think about as patients to help you do your job, I suppose, a bit better? I think it comes to a couple of things. Maybe I'll summarize kind of, uh, you know, like one, one would be simply um, understanding where we're coming from, like empathy yeah. for what, what we're doing of sorts. And that's simply to say that a lot of times we're trying to get through a day, you know, we want to spend more time a lot of times, but unfortunately our schedules and otherwise are very constraining. A lot of times I think it's, it's understanding that it's not our fault, I think would be really nice. Because for instance, I can't tell you how many times I, we've been blamed because you know, the prior authorization come through and then the pharmacy will blame us. That we, and then when we, when we talk to the pharmacists, they never sent it to us, for instance. Yeah. But maybe it's just instead of you know, pointing fingers right away and simply say, you know, I, I didn't get, get this uh, product, um, I, you know, just, just checking, did you, did you send in the prescription, for instance? Yeah. Like just not taking blame, not pointing fingers, et cetera, just simply saying, this is what happened. Uh, I'm curious what, what what you've done to help me with this, right? I think that would be really, really helpful. I think honesty too. I think, you know, just being honest with your provider, right? Just being, you know, because for instance, you know, there's often a barrier, I feel, especially if it's, you know, a short visit too. It can feel like that no one's really caring of sorts. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times when you actually you know, open up and talk about your feelings and explain your experience and so forth, it, it brings brings us back to why we, we, we did uh, join medicine in the first place, right? Absolutely. We want to help people at the end of the day. So yeah. I think, you know, being honest about those, those feelings and just acknowledging them and having an open discussion, I think is incredibly fruitful overall. 
So um, those are, are probably are the two I would uh, push the most. Awesome. Uh, I think they're great bits of advice for all diabetics out there. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for your time. I really feel like we did just kind of, you know, touch on a number of really interesting subjects. Really appreciate you giving us some time and I'm sure the listeners really appreciate it as well. Is there anything that you wanted to finish off on or happy to wrap it up, Kelvin? Uh, no, I think I, I, I've enjoyed the opportunity to talk as well and happy to kind of share my perspectives moving forward too. So um, I hope this was mutually beneficial overall. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for your time and, and have a nice day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast to keep updated. Also, we love feedback and suggestions, and we love to hear from you. So let us know what you think. We're brought to you by Not Just a Patch, the patch designed to keep your CGM stuck on you. Wishing you the loveliest of days. Goodbye.